And I'm going to ask Rico, our guest, to come forward. And uh, I'm going to introduce Rico by uh, a series of questions here for him, a, a little bit of an interview. Some of you, if you're not familiar with Rico, the very first thing you may be wondering is how did an Englishman get the name Rico? Yes, it's a stupid name. It's not my fault. It's my parents' fault. <laughs> so I was born in Chile in South America. My dad worked for BAT, British American Tobacco. So I was born there. And of course, christened Richard, that's Ricardo in Spanish, shortened to Rico. Just to say it is Rico Tice, not Tico Rice. I spent like, my life being called Tico Rice. It sounds like number 42 at the takeaway, but it is Rico Tice. <laughs> at school, I was called Rico Strico, but that had nothing to do with my behavior. I was very modest. But anyway, they <laughs> called me that. Yeah. Rico, how did you come to know Christ? Um, yeah, I wasn't from a Christian family, a, a loving family. My parents were lovely, but I, they weren't Christian. Um, but my godfather was killed in a cliff fall on the 6th of August, 1982. And um, no one in my family had an answer to his death. He just had died. First time I saw my father cry when he got news that his older brother had died. At school, it was a taboo subject too. So no one had addressed the subject of death and suddenly someone had died. It was a bit like COVID a couple of years ago. That Back in 82, it felt just like that uh, with COVID where suddenly death is real and no one has an answer. And um, wonderfully, a maths teacher at my school said to me, look, when Christ got through death, he got through death to get you through. And I, I'd suddenly realized life was so short. You know, we flourished. I took 15 COVID funerals. We flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows its place and remembers it no more. It's over so quickly. What's the answer? And, and it was amazing to find Jesus was. So, yeah, that was how I got converted. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. How, uh, tell us about your family. Yes, well, tomorrow, uh, back in England, my family move house. So I don't really know what I'm doing here. It's an abnegation of duty that I am here. And uh, it's a real marriage buster, isn't it? So my darling wife, Lucy, with her father. So uh, she does love her father much more than me. So it's all right, really. But um, <laughs> they are moving tomorrow. And then the kids start school on Tuesday. So you know what they say about being around for the significant moments? Well, here I am. <laughs> Thousands of miles away. So, you know, anyway. And so, if that means that you can't really hear me preach, I think fair enough. I mean, I quite understand. So anyway, there we are. Yeah. And so other than dodging family responsibilities, what do you do now? Yeah, well, on family, do you do pray for the kids, actually. I've got three kids. So they are, um, Peter is 12, Daniel is 11. Daniel means the Lord is my judge. He's not worked that out yet. So if you could pray for him. And then Mercy is seven, the youngest. So, so uh yeah, it's stupid calling your young your daughter Mercy with two older brothers because I spend my life going, Mercy! Mercy! <laughs> Put Mercy down, you know. So um yeah, and uh, and so they're there. Mercy lived under the stairs in our flat in London for four years. We took the cupboard out. There was so little space, and so she was under there. So she'll be screwed up later in life. So do pray for her. She's, <laughs> she's like Harry Potter, Harry Potter under the stairs, mm -hmm. just like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then what do I do in London? So, yes. so pray for the kids. It's a big thing, this move. New schools, they're starting to. Um, I, I, I've spent 30 years at a church trying to mobilize people for t telling others. Um, so um, it's been great to hear that Billy uh, uh, King uh, is trying to help you. He's been doing some morning stuff on, on just how do we present our faith to others. The job of the evangelist is not just to do evangelism themselves. It is to equip God's people for works of service. And uh, yeah, I've really given my life to trying to work that out. I think in part because I come from a non-Christian home. So the people I love most have on the whole gone to hell. Now, I don't know that's true. They're in the Lord's hands and I put them in his hands, but I have no hope of seeing them again. 
because they believed in their own goodness. They didn't believe in trusting Christ. They thought, because I'm good, I'm going to be accepted by God, which is not the gospel. So, um, yeah, so that drives you to want to make sure other people are told, doesn't it, if you, if you grieve like that. So, yeah, so trying to equip people. And then um, at Adult Souls, there's a little conference here on Thursday um, at West End Community. Where's, is it West End it's called, isn't it? Where, that's where we're going. And so there's a, there's a conference there. Just on, I mean, do come if you're free on Thursday, just on how to uh, equip people, particularly with Mark's gospel, to open that up with friends. Yeah. yeah, excellent. Well, thank you for being with us this evening. I know we're going to have uh, ruling elder Billy, Billy King come forward and read the text for this evening. So I'm going to have a seat and turn that over to Billy. Okay. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 1, verses 14 through 25. If you don't have your Bible with you, the text is in the back of your order of worship. You may follow along there. Romans 1, four, beginning with verse 14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you for all your support and encouragement, my brother. Well, just as we come this evening, and thank you very much for coming out, I wonder if we could start with a question. And the question is this. So you might want to just discuss it with the person next to you. Um, the question is, what is it that stops us telling others about the Christian faith? What stops us doing evangelism? What stops us telling others? Um, so just perhaps in pairs, discuss that. Maybe individually, maybe as a church. What is it that stops us? It may be that you don't want to chat, in which case turn to the person next to you and say, I don't like people, I'm not talking. That'll be fine. <laughs> so however you want to do it. Okay, so just a minute. Just what is it that stops us? telling others about the Christian faith. Let's have a, a couple of minutes on that. Yeah. Great, everybody. Um, now, don't, don't leave the fat Englishman stranded at the front here. What, just give me some feedback there. What is it, what is it that stops us? Bro, uh, the guy in the pink shirt, with the, I spoke to you earlier. What's your name again? It is called James. You're quite right, James. You're not fibbing. What, give it, what stops us, James? 
what stops us doing it? Lack of opportunity. Yeah, that can. I mean, that 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 can be it. So you just find that people just don't want to talk. You just feel that it just doesn't come up. Is that? Yeah. And on a deeper level, is there a reason for that? You feel, or is that? I mean, or. Do you, Opportunity to have that, yeah, yeah. A lack of opportunity that 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 can that can really be there. Let's just think about that for a moment. If you've got a Bible, because there are, there's there's an amazing verse on that, because that is right. We can often feel that, but let's just see what's going on in history. Turn with me, if you would, to just the Acts of the Apostles, Acts chapter 17. Lack of opportunity. How do we how do we think about that um, in, in terms of those around us? Because I think we do feel that. Acts 17 verse 24. And in verses 24, 25, 26, brothers and sisters, how is God described? Let's have a look. Let me hear is Paul in Athens. And he says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does, and does not live in temples built by human hands. So who is God in verse 24? How is he described in 24? Anyone tell me? What is he in 24 as we read that? He is the creator. Verse 25, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything, Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. What is he in verse 25? He's the creator, but in verse 25, he's more than that. He's also the sustainer. He gives us each breath. Verse 20. Now, hold on to your seats, everyone. Verse 26. Just hold on to your seats. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history, the boundaries of their lands. So who is God in verse 26? He's the creator in 24. He's the sustainer in 25. Who is he in 26? How is he described there? So he, he decides how long you live and where you live. Who is he there? He is the sovereign ruler. So God is the creator, sustainer, and ruler in this world. And he is all those things. For what reason? Let's have a look at 27. Maybe I've got the wrong version here. If I, is this okay if I... Well, I'm going to... I'll do this one here. here. It says in mine, God did this, so created sustainer and ruler, and he decided where people would live, so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. In other words, God, the creator, sustainer, and ruler, brothers and sisters, decides not just where you live, but where your neighbor lives, and where the person you sit next to on the plane is, or the bus those around you, or maybe you're at five-a-side soccer on Saturday morning, he puts everyone there as a divine opportunity for them to meet Jesus. That's what's going on in history. Now, that should fill us with energy and confidence. Certainly in England, we're in a culture that sees the Christian faith as about as important as croquet. Sorry, if you're into croquet, lovely. It's lovely, I'm sure. it's. A, <laughs> but, you know, they just want to marginalize it. I did history at university. I never did proper history. History is about people coming to know Jesus. So when it comes to that comment, which is a culture suppressing us so that we don't feel the opportunity, just to say the creator, sustainer, and ruler says, no, everyone you meet has been put there so that they meet Jesus, which means that you are the most important person that your neighbors know because you know Jesus. So Lucy and I are just moving, but we used to live in a street, and opposite, John and Sarah moved in, and they thought they'd come to London to work for BP. They hadn't. Why had they come to London? To meet me! That's why they'd come to London. They didn't think that, but they had. 
So when I knock on the door in the new street we're at, well, after my darling wife has moved us in and I just wander in, you know, when I go along the street to meet the neighbors, the Lord has sovereignly placed them there for you to meet them. Now, if you believe that, if you believe God set the world out for people to meet Jesus, can I say, brothers and sisters, it does two things. It fills you with confidence and optimism. And so we've got to view the world as God does. The whole world is about people meeting his son. And I, I found that passage, Acts 17, transformed my evangelism. God is in charge. He's, so have you thought about that for your neighbor? They've been placed there, or kids at school, the person sitting next to you, has been put there that they should meet Jesus, and you're the most important person they know because you know Jesus. That's what's going on in history. Great question. Let's do that. So then what do we do? Okay, what we do then is we say, okay, how do I then get a conversation going? Four steps. Number one, celebrate them. God has made them. Celebrate them. Secondly, serve them. Ask them questions. We live in such a self-obsessed culture. Jesus kept Jesus asked over 300 questions in the Gospels. Get to know them. You know, in, in, in London where I am, recycling's on a Thursday. When they move in, go around and say, here's some chocolates. It's the recycling Thursday. Just connect. Thirdly, cross the pain line. Ask a question. You know, do you think about spiritual things? Or just ask normal questions. Get to know them. And fourthly, exit. If they don't want to chat, they might not want to chat, then, you know, uh, Matthew 10, wipe the dust off your feet. Don't literally do it, but exit. Don't feel you've got to stay there. Go back to celebrating. Celebrate, serve, ask a question, back to serving. And Christmas coming up, or Easter, we find in England the festivals. We say, do you celebrate Christmas? What about Easter? So just having that in place. Great. What else stops us? What else stops us doing evangelism? What else stops us telling people? Other questions? Yeah, at the back. Yeah. Yeah, well, well, uh, there might be other things that are on our hearts that means we don't really care whether they do want to know Jesus. Quite often we can have other things. I remember when I was at Oxford University and I, all I wanted to do, my parents weren't Christians, I just wanted to play rugby for Oxford against Cambridge. And I remember three, three weeks before the varsity match and the selection, I wasn't selected because someone better got selected. But I remember sitting in the college chapel, I was at theological college thinking, I don't care about God, I don't care about the gospel, I don't care about heaven and hell. All I want to do is get my blue against Cambridge. Then I'll care about those things again. So we can find that these good things, rugby's a good thing, but it can become a God thing. Just one letter, good to God. And, it, and, it, and, it, and, it, and you know, we, 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 we can worship those things. By the way, everyone, just let me say, next week the Rugby World Cup starts. And you just need to understand that that is an event superseded in importance only by the second coming of our Lord. So just be aware of that. Don't not have a doctrine of creation and not watch it, please. Engage with it, okay? Otherwise, you're missing out. That would be sad. What else stops us doing evangelism? What else stops us? What else stops us doing it? Yeah, what else stops us? Yes. They'll make fun of us. Thank you. And just to say... My brothers and sisters, if you're going to tell others about the gospel, particularly your generation, you're going to be made fun of. So I just want to say as we start, you are going to get rejected if you tell people about Jesus. It's also amazing because some people will come to faith. That maths teacher at school, I ring him every year and say, thank you for telling me the gospel. But you're going to get rejected. And therefore, please write this down if you've got notes. The key is, 
in my identity, I've got to have the grace of God. So that, here's the phrase, whether you reject me or accept me doesn't make me valuable. What makes me valuable is Christ died for me. So grace is central, otherwise I'm not going to do it. I've got to know that the key is I'm loved by Jesus. So here I am, and I'm just, here, what this stupid Englishman up here now, I'm just jumping off to evangelism. I'm going to say something, but I won't unless I know that whether they accept or reject me doesn't make me valuable. Whether I ask a question or not, do you think about spiritual things? Whether they freeze me out or not, whether they make fun of me, it doesn't matter because the key is I'm valued by Jesus. And I've got to have that in place. Let's have a look at that in the passage we had so well read. Can we see as we look down? And this is my first point, grace. Do you see verse 17? Now, this was a massive verse for the Reformation, verse 17. For, it, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, this verse here was crucial to Martin, Martin Luther. 1505, he went into the, into the monastery and Luther said this. He used to spend six hours confessing his sin. And he said, as he was in the monastery, he said, I hated God because I longed for a God that would accept me, but all I saw was my own evil. I longed for a merciful God, Luther said. And then suddenly, reading Augustine's commentary on Romans, he read this, and he had what is famously known as his power experience, when he suddenly realized the essence of the gospel is not a righteousness we offer to God, which is my family, we're good people and we'll give God our duty and then he'll accept us. No, the essence of the gospel is a righteousness we receive from God. He gives us the righteousness of Jesus. So here is a book, and this book contains everything I've ever done wrong in my life. Rico Tice, The Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner, volume 37 of many. But here is this book, and in it is everything I've ever done wrong in here, and I wonder if you can see, every page is blank. Every page is blank. Why is every page blank? Because Jesus has given me his righteousness. My sin went on to Jesus. But amazingly, there was a swap, and his righteousness was given to me. So, as Jesus looks at me, and I'm about to jump off to evangelism, how am I secure? I go, he sees, God just sees my righteousness. Luther said, how can we be simulistus set for cartor at the same time a sinner? Because we're still battling with our sin, but righteous. And the, the, the answer is Jesus. And therefore, as I speak to someone, do jot this phrase down, I don't live for their approval, but from it. I live from approval. I'm utterly secure. Um, years ago, I was at home on my day off, and my brother and his kids were going off to a wedding with his wife, and uh, uh, I was there with, my, with my, my, my mother and father, and I was looking after the grandchildren, and I was teaching the grandchildren to play rugby. The two, my, uh, my brothers, my two nephews, my brother's two kids, they were four and two, but you've got to start them young. So I was on the floor of my mother's sitting room with this four-year-old called Dalton, and I was teaching them to scrummage, and in the middle of that, Patrick, the two-year-old, picked up a large plant pot, and he started to empty it all over the floor, to make a field. And he basically trashed my mother's sitting room. And when I next looked up, I'm not kidding, there was mud everywhere. And at that point, my mother walked in the room and the floor was trashed. And she walked over to this two-year-old little boy. She picked up the plant pot. She put it on one side. 
she picked him up and she kissed him and she said, let's go and have lunch. And as she carried him out of the room, he looked over her shoulder at Dalton and I, the four-year-old on the ground, and he went, like that. <laughs> you see, his grandmother knows what he's done. She's going to clear up the mess. She loves him anyway. Can I say that's the gospel, everybody? He knows what you've done. He'll clear, he clears up the mess. But how do you want to live? And how do, do you want to speak? My mother would have done anything for me. The result of that is that actually I long to please her. But that's the security we have. He knows all about us. I got sent away to an English boarding school when I was eight. I'm okay now. I've just about recovered from the experience. <laughs> when I got there, I was taught three things. Tice, you're not good enough. Prove yourself, and it's a dangerous world. You don't have your parents there, so everything is conditional love. You only get loved if you achieve. But then when I was 16 and I got told the gospel, suddenly I got told, yeah, you're not good enough, but Jesus died for your sin. Prove yourself. No, no, no. I live by his performance, not mine. It's a dangerous world. Yes, it is, but he will take me through it. So my question is, brother, sister, as we try and get evangelism going, how deep is the gospel into you? And actually, that'll depend on how serious you think your sin is. If you can see your sin as God does, you'll be amazed God gives you the privilege of speaking to people. So here are some words that um, 50, 70 years ago in Pittsburgh, an Australian bishop called Alf Stanway spoke to some men getting ordained. And this is what he said in the 1950s to these men entering the ministry. So these men will all be very old or dead now. And this is what he said to them. And, and this is the amazing thing, privilege we have of evangelism. He said this, if other people knew you, like God knows you, all your faults, all your vain thoughts, all your sins, all the wrong things uh, uh, in your heart, all the wrong thoughts you ever had, would they trust you with the kind of work God trusts you with? Here is the supreme confidence God has in his own grace. He'll take the like of you and me and give us the privilege of being his saints. It's amazing we have this opportunity when you think of our sin. So number one, grace. Victor Hugo said, life's greatest joy is to be convinced you're loved. And we are in the grace of God. What will we do with that grace? Will, we, will it be at the center of our identity? If it is, then we'll speak out even if we re get rejected. But secondly, Gehenna. Gehenna was the stinking public ru rubbish dump outside of Jerusalem. So, and there was a huge bonfire there. And the bodies of criminals were thrown there. Animal carcasses. It was a, a, a mound of decomposed, rotting material. Um, it, the, 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 the fires never went out. It stank. And Jesus, when he spoke of what would happen to people who died with their sin unforgiven, said they will go to Gehenna. So Jesus is the theologian of hell. Jesus, the most loving man that ever lived. The first thing that struck me about Jesus is he said in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Then as he was being murdered, he said to his killers, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He prayed for them. He lived out the teaching. But this man, who couldn't be more loving, said, there is a place called hell. And brothers and sisters, he speaks of Gehenna again and again and again. Uh, Matthew's gospel. Let me just give you a couple of uh, uh, things from it, just in terms of how Jesus speaks again and again of hell. Matthew 5, verse 22. You know, people say they love the Sermon on the Mount. Really? 
Uh, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Matthew 5.29, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than the whole of your body to be thrown into hell. Matthew 7, verse 13, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the road and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And John Stott says the road to destruction is defined by two things, tolerance and permissiveness. Again and again and again, Jesus talks of hell. What's the next verse that Jesus gives us in Matthew 7? Let me give it to you. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. So just after he said there's a road to destruction, he then says they're false prophets. Why does he do that? Because the false prophet will, by definition, Jeremiah 23, tell you there's no hell. If you hear someone say there's no hell, they are a false teacher. That's the biblical definition. And again and again and again, Jesus does that. If you go through Matthew Gospel, he never stops speaking about it. Again, uh, 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 Matthew uh, chapter 8, verse 12, um, uh, just as we um, look down here. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He just talks about it again and again and again. And the question is, when he speaks of hell, my dear brothers and sisters, the question is this, do you believe him? Do you think that's true? Is he telling the truth or is he lying? He says there's a, a place called hell. There is only one Jesus. If he doesn't speak about hell, we don't know who he is. And he calls hell a place of suffering and separation. It is a place of punishment. And the people who go there are those who say, I will do what I like with the hands you've made, the eyes you've made, the feet you've made. I'll do what I like. So those people go there and there is one way out. How do you get from hell to heaven, to the new creation? The answer is the cross. He says, I'm going to die to save you from that. But the question is, will we warn people? And here in Romans, can you see what Paul says about that? He says, can we see verse 14 at the top? I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now, look, there are two ways to fall into debt. Obligation, the word there has a sense of debt. It's Todd, isn't it? Is it Todd? And the brother of the, what's your name again, bro? Is it Matt, Matt. So you're Matt and you're Matt. They're both called Matt. Okay, so let's say that Matt has given me $20 and I have to give it back to him. That's one way of me being in debt. But the second way of being in debt is this. Matt says, Rico, here's $20. Can you pass it on to Matt? Now, until I've passed it on, I'm in Matt's debt and I'm in Matt's debt. I'm in every, I'm each of their debt. And that's the debt that Paul's talking about. He says, I've got to go to Spain because I'm in debt. I owe them the gospel. One of the things that changed me was when I was at Oxford University. I was playing rugby for the university. And I gave a tape of a sermon I preached on John 1 verse 29 to one of the guys called Ed in the rugby team. And in that sermon, Jesus, uh, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I said in that sermon, either the Lamb of God pays for our sin or we pay ourselves in hell. Well, one evening, Ed, for a laugh, put the tape on the night before a game. They were having a quiet evening in with Chris and Ben and Dave, who was captain of the Blues rugby team. And he put on the tape and he played the tape. And Dave wasn't a Christian, the captain of the team. And gradually as the tape played, and I talked about hell and Jesus' rescue and the need to warn people, gradually as the tape played, he got more and more angry. And at the end of the tape, he said to Ed and to the others, 
Rico's not my friend. And they said, don't be ridiculous. You play in the rugby team together. You play golf together. You go on tour together. You room together. He said, no, he's not my friend. He said, if that's what Rico believes, the fact he said nothing to me in 18 months means that he does not care for me. If he cared for me, he would have warned me. And Ed, the non-Christian, I'll never forget the phone call, rang me up at my college and said, Rico, I'm so sorry. I played the tape. Dave is very upset you've not spoken to him. You need to speak to him. You need to speak to him. Brother, sister, who do you need to talk to? Who do you need to talk to? You've known them a long time. You've never warned them. You need to say, look, I'm sorry about this. This friendship's really important, but I'm not your friend unless I give you this information. Once I've given it to you, it's up to you. But this is the information. I think we're going to stand before God at the end of our lives. And I think he's going to ask you, did we have a relationship? And I, I don't know what you make of the cross of Jesus, but I think he died for us. Now, look, that is a pain line to cross. So I've got to have my identity in the grace of God as I say it. But I, but I am in debt. Thirdly, as we look down, why won't we speak? If we believe this, why won't we say anything? Um, I wrote this book about this, really. The thing that this book, Honest Evangelism, um, I, after 20 years at the church trying to train people, I wrote this book. It's sold very well. I've sold 17 copies. It's gone outstandingly well. But the thing, the most feedback I got in the book was actually um, the chapter on why don't we speak? And actually, verse 25 has something to say about that. Can we see verse 25 as we look down? Because this is written about non-Christians, but it can be written about Christians too. Verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Do you remember I said when I was at Oxford, I, I just all I wanted was the blue. I didn't care about God or my family or the gospel. Well, these good things, these idols come in and they become our gods. And then we come along to church. It's lovely to see you here. But we expect God to be a divine waiter who actually gives us what we want. And we sort of tip him. And we have these daydreams that we've got. And actually, the reason often people don't tell others is their hearts have been captured by these idols. So we, 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 we become those people who actually, you know, they're, they're just other things that we're longing uh, to have. We have to fight these glory wars. So things that are given to us by God as gifts become the things we run our, right, land around, our lives around. And they're good things like the grandchildren or the career or where, where we're going to live they're, or the education, whatever it is. The kids, they're good things, but actually they become God things. Now, how can we diagnose this if we're not speaking? Can I just ask you, Tim Keller, who's died recently, was so great at helping us with this. The two questions he would ask again and again were, what are your daydreams? What do you daydream about? If you're not evangelizing, that'll be a reason. That's where your heart is. Secondly, what are your nightmares? What are the things you most dread? That will unlock why you're not doing it. Um, when I was at All Souls, when I first arrived there, John Stott was on staff. He got up at 10 to 5 in the morning and slept for half an hour each afternoon. And I myself adopted one of those two habits. He was a, 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 a great man. And, um, and, and, and I longed for his approval. And one of the things that a, a good pastor is, is efficient. And I wasn't efficient. So people in the church family would say, Rico, have you done something? And I'd say, yes, I had. And I would do a barefaced lie. 
and I hadn't done it. I'd run off and do it before they found out. And I was lying like this for years at the church. And then I realized why I was doing it. It's because my idol was to be seen as a fine pastor, which is a good thing, but it had become a God thing. And I had to say, Lord God, my identity is in the gospel. My righteousness is what you've done. Help me to tell the truth. And so then I started going, I'm sorry, you asked me to do it. I haven't done it. I've been inefficient. Please forgive me. I'll try and do it. But it was an idol. What are your idols? But often that'll be why you're not speaking, because that's what's captured your heart. And idols, do you know what they're like? They're like the farmer with the turkey at Christmas. So the turkey loves the farmer. The turkey loves the farmer. The farmer feeds the turkey. He feeds the turkey. He feeds the turkey. And then he kills the turkey. And idols will kill us. They feed us and feed us and feed us. Then they kill us. Please try and work out what they are. And that will help you keep speaking. Let me finish with this. So I don't know where they are. Grace, is that in place? Gehenna, a place called hell, is that in place? Glory, if you're not doing it, what are your idols doing? But lastly, as we close, godliness. Godliness. Can I say this? You cannot be godly. You cannot be godly and not be concerned for the lost. God was so concerned for the lost, he sent his son to die. Now, at my church, All Souls, in central London, and I love the church family, there were quite a number of people who, in their minds, had thought they were godly, but they never did evangelism because they just didn't think that was something that was right for their personality. So they never did that. They never spoke to people, but they felt they were living godly lives. If you got underneath why they weren't speaking, they'd often have said something like this. My faith is a personal, private thing. It helps me in my life, but I wouldn't dream of imposing it on someone else. It's just a personal thing. And so they wouldn't speak. But actually, that needs to be repented of. Godliness means being like God. And what did God do? For God so loved the world, he sent his son. So we've got to go to people, not least because God has organized every neighbor. We've got to be there. He's put them there. And if we look as we close, do you see verse 18? Just let's have a look as we look down. For the wrath of God, God's anger is revealed from heaven against all the godless, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in, by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So that is the non-Christian suppressing the truth. But actually, we suppress it too. We don't speak to people about evangelism, about the Lord Jesus, and there is nothing that makes God more angry. My little boy, Daniel, let's say we were out on the road outside and you're standing there and a truck is coming past. He runs, pushes you out the way and gets hit himself and gets killed. And you turned around and his body's there and you go, do you know, he didn't need to do that. I was fine. God sends his son to die so that we don't face the judgment to come. And yet so many turn around and say, I don't need Jesus to do it. I'm fine. And there's nothing that makes God more cross. So if I want to be godly, I've got to be seeking to speak to others. Within my personality, there are lots of different ways of speaking, but I've got to be doing it. So of those four, which one do we need to, to ponder? Is it the grace of God? I've got to get that in my identity so I can go on speaking. Is it Gehenna? There is a place called hell for those whose sin is unpaid for by the cross. Is it glory? There are idols that are, that, are, that are actually stopping me speaking. Is it godliness? Have I just suppressed it? And then, as we think about which one of those four is the issue, the next question, of course, is this. Who do I need to warn? As we're here now, brothers and sisters, who's the person that I think, you know, 
That's a dear friend or a neighbour, and I've never spoken to them. I really haven't talked. Maybe I need to start, start praying. Maybe as we, as we head towards Christmas, I can invite them along. But I, I've never talked. I need to have a chat. Who's the person that God is saying, now as, as you're here, the Holy Spirit is sort of saying, it's that person. I need to chat with them. Who could that be? Let's pray as we close. Let's pray. So a moment first, just to realize we're forgiven. So if we have failed to, 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 to speak to others, wonderfully we're forgiven. We relate to God through Christ's performance, not our own. But also let's repent. Let's seek God's forgiveness, but also say, Lord, help me to change. You sent your son, send me now. And then as we think of that dear individual, Lord, we pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would make them spiritually hungry. Thank you that you opened our blind eyes to Jesus. Please open their blind eyes. Help them to see who Jesus is. And give me courage to speak, please, Lord. And we ask all this for the glory of Jesus. Amen.